is, is a pretty heavy Sunday, not just because of that, but because of today's passage. And so um, if you notice the difference in my tone, it's intentional because today is probably the most depressing passage I have ever read in the Bible. And so I know whenever we do a series, we usually kind of end on a good note or a positive note. We usually end on an exclamation point and we, um, it's happy, it's a happy ending, it's uplifting and encouraging. Um, but that is definitely not today. And so I'm going to ask you to turn this way, put your cell phones down, um, unless you're going to be using them for Bible, and, and just really tune in today. If you're someone that needs like a story or a joke every few minutes to kind of stay tuned in, I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you extra strength today because um, today is one of those passages that's really hard to get through and um, it's emotional, it's, it's gut-wrenching. If you're new with us today, then I want you to also know that um, we look at all aspects of Scripture. Um, we don't skip over hard passages, and so uh, it's tempting to skip over today's passage. But we're not going to do that today. We're going to dive into it and see what God has to say to us through his word. So if you surveyed your grandparents or your parents, or you probably heard conversations, you've heard, you heard them say things like, um, you know, things are progressively getting worse and worse in our culture. Things are morally going downhill. The, the more time we spend on this earth, the more things are, are going downhill morally and spiritually. And on the one hand, I can see how they would think that. Um, but people have this idea that a long time ago that things were better and now things are worse. And I would tell you that the Bible proves that theory wrong. Because when you look at the scriptures, you see some of the worst sins that we can think up are in this book that we study. Some of the worst stories, the, the, the most horrific crimes you can imagine, are in this book that we call the Bible. And so today we're going to look at one of those uh, horrific stories today. So look at Judges chapter 19. Judges 19. And here's what it says. We're going to look at verse 1 uh, to 4 starting off. It says, In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. So, quick question. Who were the Levites? Just someone shout out an answer. Who were the Levites of Israel? What were they known for? Okay, priests. They're the priestly tribe of Israel. They're the, they're the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. Now, a concubine. Now, what is a concubine? <laughs> I don't know if I'd use that verbiage for that, that person, but so not a prostitute. So a concubine would be someone who's like a second or third wife for someone. So uh, we know Abraham had Sarah, that was his wife, but he also had Hagar, who was his concubine, okay? Now, I am in no way saying to you that concubines were biblical. They were not biblical. It was never God's intent to say, hey, uh, Here's your wife, and then here's 12 concubines. That was never the plan. God created Adam and Eve, not Adam, Eve, Eve number one, Eve number two, Eve number three. He didn't, he didn't create it that way. And so God's intent was for one man, one woman for an entire lifetime. 
But what started to happen, though, was in that culture, men started to think, because see, here's the deal. The number of children that you had, that kind of signal, you needed more kids to um, work whatever crops they had and so on. So they, they also saw childbearing as a, um, almost like gaining wealth in a sense. And so uh, they wanted to have more and more kids, so they would a- actually get more concubines so they could have more kids. So she was not a wife, but she was used for childbearing. So that's what a concubine was. God's plan was husbands and wives, not concubines. So the question is, why would someone have a concubine, especially someone like a Levite priest who should know better, right? And the answer is, the culture they lived in accepted this idea that you could have a concubine. That was part of their culture that they were a part of. So what we see is, once again, God's people beginning to make compromises and and making, uh, making changes in how they live based on the culture that they're a part of. And you guys know this to be true, but this is exactly what we do today, right? So the Christians are supposed to be set apart, holy people of God. And the way that we choose to live so often just looks just like the culture we're a part of. This is what happened in that time as well. So here's what this woman does. She commits adultery, and she runs away from her Um, not husband, whatever they would call the guy in that situation. Uh, She runs away from him. In that day, adultery was punishable by death. And so even a concubine could, if she committed adultery, was unfaithful to her guy, then she could be put to death for that sin. And so she runs away. She's probably terrified for her life, but she's probably also steeped in shame over her sin. So she runs to daddy's house. She goes to daddy's house, which you, you can imagine, that's the place you'd go, right? Because daddy's going to protect her. Dad, that, dad's, that has his um, protective wing over her. And so, but if you think about it though, I would guess that she's also very ashamed of her sin. And so just like Adam and Eve did at the fall, Adam and Eve sinned, they hide from God, right? Just like you and I do, we sin, we fall away from God, we, we hide from our parents, we hide from our friends, we hide from God. And the same thing is what she did. She hides from the man that she is supposedly committed to in this relationship. Look at verse 3. It says, Then her husband, so it calls him a husband here, so I guess we call him a husband. Then her husband arose, and he went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. So this guy, he waits four months to go pursue his concubine. And we don't know why he waits that long. It might be to let the dust settle. Maybe he's just really angry at her. Maybe um, he's really busy and has lots of stuff he has to do. We don't know why he waits this long to pursue her. But he goes after her. And it says he, he goes to speak kindly to her to try to win her back and bring her back with him. And so she invites him to come into her father's house to stay with her, her and her father. And in that day, hospitality was a really big deal. And so this father-in-law, um, in an effort to kind of smooth things over, is like, hey, come on in. Let's, let's eat and drink and let's have a party. And let's, you can tell he's really trying to smooth things over for his daughter in hopes that this man will not take her back and maybe punish her 
for what she has done to him. He's hoping for the best. And so he does this for five consecutive nights, right? He does this, you know, the, the man says, hey, I'm going to go ahead and leave tomorrow morning. And he says, okay. And then the next day comes and he, the day goes on and he says, he says um, why don't you stay another night? Let's just eat and drink and have fun. You know, the dad's really trying to keep her in the house for probably obvious reasons, right? And he's trying to protect his daughter and keep her from um, maybe getting killed as a result of what she has done. I'm going to summarize for you the next, uh, let's see, Judges 19, 10 to 13, because um, I'm, I'm trying to keep you through this passage and not uh, overload you with lots of text. So, uh, summary of 10 to 13 they leave the father's house, and they travel to a place called Gibeah. So you've got the servant, you've got the Levite, you've got the concubine all together. And don't forget, two donkeys are in the part of the mix as well. And uh, they travel to Gibeah, which is part of the tribe of Benjamin. So Benjamin is part of Israel. Levites are part of Israel. This is an area that they should be known. This is, should be friendly territory, this place called Gibeah. The Levites' servant suggests on the way they should stop in Jerusalem and spend the night there because it's getting late at night. But Jerusalem at the time is under foreign occupation. And so the Levite at this point is scared that the people who are occupying Jerusalem at the time are going to maybe take advantage of them. So he says, let's, let's not go there. Let's continue on to Gibeah in Benjamin where it's supposed to be friendly. Can you imagine having to, having to plan your travel that way, right? Like... We, we can't wrap our minds around how they even just traveled back then because it was so dangerous. You had no cops. You had no police force. No one looking out for the smaller person or the, the weaker. And so you had to really think through, like, if we stop here, these people could rob us or kill us. I mean, imagine if, you, if you're, like, going to San Antonio and you say, we've got to um, get to San Antonio and we can't stop in Austin because we're going to get killed, Right? Now, I know the Aggies do think that way already, but um, that's beside the point. But so imagine having to plan your schedule and your arrangements around going through other towns or passing through so you don't die. This is where they were back in that time. And so out of fear, they go on to Gibeah where they think they're going to be safe. Look with me in verse uh, 14. It says, so they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down, that went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And so in that day there was also no hotels. And so an Israelite passing through another Israelite town, Israelite town they would actually go and stand in the middle of of the town and wait for someone to take them in. You can see how big hospitality was because if you decide to travel somewhere, you might actually die on the way if no one takes you in. And so no hotels, no restaurants. All you had was the hope that when I get to the next town, I'll go to the town square, I'll wait for someone to come and pick me up, a stranger, but a fellow Israelite, and they will invite me into their home. I can eat with them, drink with them, spend the night there, then be on my way the next day. This was the expectation. Like, imagine this. This was their hospitable expectation, right? You see your fellow man in need, and you reach out to them. You don't just say, hi, how you doing? You offer them your home. You offer them food. 
And we have trouble accepting people at the outback, right? I mean, how much, how little is expected of us compared to them in that time, hospitality-wise? And, and I admit this of my own self, that we have trouble extending ourselves to people. That was the expectation in that day. And if you didn't offer it, someone could die on their journey. That was the expectation. I want, to keep, I want you to keep in mind, this guy is a Levite, and Gibeah is in the town, is actually a town in Benjamin, a fellow uh, Israelite community. And so you would think they'd be privileged to have this guy. I mean, a Levite, this guy from the priestly tribe, he shows up in your town. Of course you're going to welcome him with open arms, right? That's what you would expect them to do. I want to summarize for you verses 16 to 21. So as they're waiting in this town square, there's an old man. The Bible calls him a foreigner, someone who's not an Israelite. An old man, a foreigner, comes up to this group of people, and he approaches them. He invites them to stay with him, and he warns them. He says, they should not stay in the town square. This is when the creepy music starts playing in the movie. Um, Things get ominous. And so instead of a fellow Israelite offering a place to stay, a foreigner does. I would say most likely because he knows what it feels like. He knows what it's like to come into a town, have no one welcome him, no one share meals with him, no one share their home with him. He knows what that town is like. He's been there and done that. And he's offering himself to them because no one offered themselves to him. He knows what it's like. Look with me in verse... uh, 22. As they were making their hearts merry, meaning they probably were drinking Kool-Aid or something like that, you know. Um, Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house. I want you to put yourself in the story now. Just put yourself in this story in the sense that you're there, you're in the room. What would this be like if this were to happen to you? You're at a friend's house having dinner, and this next scene we're about to read, takes place. Just put yourself there um, in this story. So these worthless fellows, these criminals, surround the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now this is not like get to know him. This is like sexually. This is what the word means in the Bible is like, we want to attack him sexually. This is what we're, what we're talking about here in this story, all right? This is a flashback to a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 23. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. In that day, if somebody's in your house, you are sworn to protect them. That's part of hospitality is to make sure that no one comes in and attacks and steals away your guests, right? So put yourself in the story. You're at someone's house having dinner, and a mob, an angry mob, begins to knock on the door of the windows and yell and scream because they want to rape the guests. I'm just being blunt today. 
I mean, how terrified you would be if you were inside that house, right? Now, don't get me wrong. Um, if someone's knocking on my door and requesting that of my house guests, I'm calling the cops, right? That's what we're going to do. It's real simple. Call, lock the doors, um, get out the 45, and call the cops, right? That's what it's going to be. But in that day, you, you see how helpless they were. They don't have that. There, there's no authority structure. There's no, I mean, evil just kind of runs rampant because of, of the fact that there's no authority structure in place. You recall, opening chapter says, opening verse says, there was no king in Israel. It's ominous. It's ominous. There's no protection. And so, this man in the house begins, begins to lecture them on their wickedness. He begins to say things like, please, don't do this to my house guests. Don't do this to this man. So he begins to lecture them and say, don't do this wicked and vile thing. Now keep that in mind. I want you to watch what happens and watch what this man now does. Look at verse 24. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. So this man just lectures them on their evil, and then he does this. He offers them his own daughter and the man's concubine for them to do whatever they want to do to these two women. How messed up does someone have to be to willingly offer to someone else their own daughter? How depraved, how wicked does someone have to be to offer someone like that their own flesh and blood? I have a daughter who's three years old, and let me just tell you right now, my wife has, has said this about me. She said she's worried about the first guy who calls my daughter. She's worried about the first guy who tries to pick her up for a date. She's worried about that guy, and I am too, frankly, because there's a protective thing in a father that just wants to protect his little girl, protect his daughter, protect his wife. And here we've got a man who willingly offers his daughter to men who want to abuse her. I mean, this is about as sick as we can possibly imagine. In that day, they saw women as property not as a person. They saw them not as made in his image. They saw her as a means to an end. They saw her as property and object. So even some men who were so wicked, they saw even their daughters as just property. They saw even their daughters as just, in this situation, it's a way to alleviate this mob. And he's more willing to protect this stranger in his home than he is about protecting the person he has raised in that home. This is wickedness at its core. Wickedness at its core. Look at verse 25. But the men 
would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and they abused her all night. I think we forget that these are like real people. I can't even read this. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her mother was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying on the floor of the house at the door of the house, with her hands on the threshold. Verse 28. And he said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. So at this point, she is dead. She's dead. Verse 29. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the peoples of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So I don't have to tell you just how incredibly dark and depraved this story is. This is a result of just sheer unapologetic evil. There's no other category for it. There's no other way to describe it. You know, we come into the story thinking that the Levite and the old man are the good guys. They have some semblance of goodness to them, right? But this story doesn't have any good guys. This story doesn't have any good guys. The old man and the Levite are just as evil as the men outside that door. I mean, how hard-hearted do you have to be to, to treat someone like this? To treat a person who God created, to treat someone, a woman, a weaker vessel, someone you should be protecting, and you exploit them so you can protect your, this male stranger in your house? And the passage even says that, that while she's being abused all night, that this guy, he goes to bed, he goes to sleep. I mean, how cold do you have to be to emotionally detach yourself from that situation to where you can actually sleep? How, how can that possibly happen? And so the next morning, she's lying lifeless on the floor, and instead of running to her aid, he just says, get up, we have to leave. I mean, what callousness, what hard-heartedness does someone have to have to just know she's being abused and still sleep and see her on the floor after she's been abused and she's dead. 
And instead of running to her aid to see if she's okay, at least that, he just says, get up, we have to go. We've got to get out of here. And when she doesn't move, he picks her up, puts her on the donkey, takes her home, and now he's angry at the situation what these men did. He should have gotten angry before she was abused, before she was killed. But now he's angry, you know why? Because, remember, she's his property. She's his object. She's his property. So he is angry these men, at these men, so he decides to send a message to the whole nation of Israel and let them know of this great crime that took place in the town called Gibeah. So he, he cuts her up and sends a piece of her to every part of the nation of Israel to rally those troops against the town of Gibeah and the tribe of Benjamin. Well, here's the one little piece of good news in the story. Is that in verse 30 we learn that nothing like this had ever happened before. So at least we know that. At least we can hang our hat on that. At least we can say, okay, this was a first and hopefully a last for Israel. This was not an everyday occurrence. But we can still tell from the story that Gibeah had a bad reputation. The foreign man, he knew that. He said, hey, don't stay in the town square. Bad things happen in the town square. People get taken advantage. People get exploited in the town square. And so this place had a reputation. But at least we know that this was hopefully the first time and the last time anything like this ever happened in Gibeah. And I'll tell you what this shows. This story shows us some really dark things. It shows us that Gibeah, this little town in the tribe of Benjamin, Israel, this is Israel doing this. This is Israel doing this to Israel. This is not like Sodom or Gomorrah. The Israelites had God's revelation. They had his law, his covenant, the tabernacle, God's presence with them and they still acted this way. What's this tell us about us? It tells us that God's people, that we are just as evil at our core as the unbelievers. So if you take your life and you subtract Jesus from your life, you subtract the gospel from your life, we are just as wicked and depraved and evil as an unbeliever. That's where our life will go. We are no better than anyone else. Anything good that you and I do as a Christian is only because of the grace and mercy at work in your life. That's the only reason. We don't take any credit. We can't take any glory. It's only because of Jesus Christ, his work for us on the cross, that we can say we've been saved and redeemed and sanctified and justified and eventually glorified. That's it. There's nothing else. We can't take credit for any of this. Read a story like this and we think to ourselves, man, there's no way. There's no way I'd be that evil if I had, even if I, even if I wasn't a Christian, I still wouldn't be like that. Really? How do you know that? If Christ wasn't in your life, how do you know you wouldn't do something like this? 
I mean, these are God's people. These are the people of God. These are the Israelites, and they're acting this way. I mean, how, how dark is that? How dark is that? It's easy for us to look at this story and not see ourselves in it. But I beg to differ. I think we can see ourselves in it. Because all you have to do is think about what would my life look like if I did not have the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in my life? It could look like that. And to me, it's a, it's a great way for us to think about how evil we really could be without Christ and how glorious his grace and mercy is to us. Because most of us, especially those of you that grew up in the church, we very easily take his grace for granted because you just always have known about it and always had it. And so you forget that, no, the person I could be without Christ is a really, really ugly picture. It's a really ugly picture. And so these men, they treat women like property, like an item, a sex object is all they are to them. Where else do we see that in our world? I want you to think about your life, the culture you live in, the world that you inhabit. Where else do we see that kind of thinking where women are seen as objects, as inhuman? Where else do you see that kind of thing? For you guys, the way that your friends or the way that you talk about girls at your school, is that a way in which we see them as less than human, as an object? Or how about just sheer pornography? I mean, the way that women are demeaned and seen as less than human through the portals of the internet or the iPhone. Another one that's gained a lot of attention recently is... uh, Everyone's talking about sex trafficking in our culture today. And if you don't know what that is, basically, it, it basically is, even here in the U.S., there are people that are kidnapped, young girls kidnapped, taken, and basically sex slaves here in the U.S. And they have to um, fall down and worship a guy who is in charge of them, basically, and whatever he says goes, and they have no recourse They're victims. They don't want to be there, but they are because there's no way out. And so this is a big industry in our culture today, worldwide. And the weird thing about it is that Christians are taking notice of it and trying to put an end to it. And so Christians everywhere are talking about sex trafficking and ending sex trafficking. And I would say that's a good cause. We should try to um, put our efforts together and try to bring awareness to that. And so one of the things that um, Christians have done recently is they are raising awareness by recently putting the red X on their hand to raise awareness of sex trafficking. And, um, you know, when I hear that, I'm all for raising awareness, all for ending those kinds of things. But please, you know how Christians can end sex trafficking? Stop looking at porn. Stop looking at pornography. How many women are in that lifestyle, and the Christians are feeding into it, supporting it financially, buying it, viewing it online. And so if, if you want to end sex trafficking as a Christian, start by stop looking at pornography. Let's begin there. Let's start there. And, and so before, before you put the red X on your hand to end sex trafficking, 
Maybe we should make sure those same hands aren't scrolling through our online pornography collection. Maybe we should make sure that, um, that we're not supporting sex trafficking in other ways while we put the red X on our hands saying we want to end sex trafficking here in our culture. And I know whenever I rant about something like pornography, it's not just good to say, you know, okay, guys, just stop it, cut it out, stop doing that. So if I'm going to pass to you, well, I've got to say, why? Right? And so we learn in the book of Genesis that we're made in God's image. We learn that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And so with pornography, people are seen as objects, as property, just like these women. And so to view pornography is to devalue someone who is made in God's image. You see him as an object, property, valueless. That woman or that man is made in the image of God. God made them. God created them. That is someone's, that is someone's sister. That is someone's daughter. That is someone's son. These people have relationships. And we see them as made in God's image. And so what happens is whenever someone views pornography, they see someone else as less than human, what happens is the reversal effect on themselves. They become, in the sense, less than human themselves. They begin to see other people that way. They kind of become that way themselves. As they demean someone's, someone else's um, image of God likeness, we deface our own image of God likeness. And I know whenever I bring up pornography, everyone thinks I'm talking to the guys, and I'm not. I'm talking to the girls, too. Because, um, because I like to read a lot, and I know that um, it's prevalent everywhere. Everyone is falling prey to these kinds of things. In fact, there's a book that um, I heard about recently. It's called uh, Female Chauvinist Pigs. And this book is actually written by a non-Christian. It is a horrific read because it describes what the girls of our culture are doing today as they demean themselves and devalue themselves in our culture. And what it shows us is that the girls are playing the same game the guys have been playing for years. And what's happening is the girls have this mindset now, okay, the guy's going to treat us like, like that? Fine, we'll just act that way. We'll just be that way. We'll one-up the guys. We'll make it worse than them. And so the girls are beginning to buy into the same lie as well. And now they're seeing themselves as sex objects. They're seeing themselves as property. They are seeing themselves as less than human. And what I think is interesting is that even unbelievers, this person's not even a believer, even an unbeliever recognizes how messed up that is. Like even they see like how jacked up we've become in our sexuality. Even an unbelievers recognizing, yeah, this is pretty messed up. I would think that unbelievers could read this chapter in the Bible and say, yes, that shouldn't have happened. This should not be happening to people in our culture. And the worst part about this is that many women think this is empowering. Like this is, this is a way to be a real woman, 
a way to gain power over the men. And I can kind of see how they think that way because when they see girls flashing their bodies at guys all the time through media, whatever else, when they see those kinds of things and they see the guys react to it and then they think to themselves, yes, this is our ticket to power. This is how we can feel powerful. They, can, they feel like it's empowering, but it's enslaving. They feel like it gives them an edge over the guys, but really it puts them beneath, devalued, dehumanized, and the image of God is defaced in them. So after all this happens in Judges 20, I'm going to summarize it very quickly. Israel breaks out into civil war as a result of this incident, and thousands of Israelites die as a result of it. The entire tribe of Benjamin almost gets destroyed. And in Judges 21-25, the last verse of the entire book, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the depressing conclusion of the book of Judges. Will your life have that same kind of depressing conclusion? You know, some of you right now, you're living a compromised life, just like Israel was. And you say things to yourself like, well, right now I'm just going through a season. I'm just going through a season. I need to, you know, kind of experience life, live a little crazy so I can, you know, be a more legit Christian. I can have a better testimony. People listen to the guy that has the crazy testimony. I need to have a testimony like that. So I'm going to live life a little bit, experience some stuff, and then I'll return back to Christ. Some of you guys are living in that place right now. And you're saying to yourself, well, I'm going to snap out of it one day. I'm going to pray right here today that you snap out of it today. That today is the day you repent. That today is the day you give your life to Christ. Today is the day that you turn your life over to him. You know, the book of Judges is, is not really a story for us to follow. It's more like a warning of this is what could happen to you, <laughs> right? In fact, one uh, writer says this. He says, no other book in the Old Testament offers the modern church as telling a mirror as this book. This book is a wake-up call for the church, for a church more abundant in its own selfish pursuits. Instead of heeding the call of the truly godly leaders, and letting Jesus Christ be the Lord of the church, everywhere congregations and their leaders do what is right in their own eyes. And so this is an example of what happens when we don't follow after God, don't follow after Jesus. And what we also learned from this book is that they had no king. All the judges were flawed. And so what's the point of the book of Judges? It's this. We need a better judge, need a better king. And his name is Jesus Christ. This whole book is a setup for Jesus. This whole book shows us what life is like without him. You get the picture? This is a setup for how much you and I need Jesus Christ, need God in our lives. Tim Keller says, We must look to the greatest king or we will serve a false one. And so I want you guys to go ahead and close your eyes for a few minutes. And I'm just going to kind of pray. And what I want to do is just, if you're someone this morning who would consider yourself, you're not a believer, 
you're trying to examine things and figure out what you believe, I would ask you this question. What would the world be like without Jesus? What would the world be like without God? I think you'd see a lot more of the story that you saw today in Judges. And I think what God wants to show us through those kinds of stories is that at times he shows us how important he is as God through his absence. And so the story, you don't see God in the story very much, do you? This is what it would be like without Jesus, without God, in the world. And so as an unbeliever, I want you to think about that. And I want you to think about that, and I, my hope is that that would lead you to a place of turning to Christ, a place of repentance, a place of coming to know him for the first time in your life. And if that is you, I'm not going to lead you in a prayer this morning. I want you just to pray to him at some point today, tomorrow, next week, whenever you've thought it through. When you decide, I want to follow Jesus Christ, I want to surrender my life to him. If that is you, you're an unbeliever today, I'm inviting you to commit your life to Jesus Christ. If you're someone who is a believer, but you've been living a compromised life like the Israelites were, then I'm inviting you this morning to repent in a very similar way. You might know Christ, but you've been living apart from him in your life. I'm going to invite you this morning to repent and turn back to him. The areas of life where you know you're making compromises, the area of your life where you know that you are living and walking in intentional sin and not letting him be the king, not letting him be the judge over your life. I want you to confess those things to God, even just right now. Quietly in your seat, just be confessing those things to God and telling him that you want to have him change you. You can't change yourself. Only God can change you. But if you ask him to change you, he will. Confess those things to him, even just right now. We've seen a lot in this book. This book is an intense book. It's a scary book. It's a depressing book. But my hope is that as we end on this sort of down note with this book, that you would understand that God wants to show us who he is as our judge, as our king. And my hope is that you'll follow him, you'll believe in him, you want to glorify him, and you want to live for him. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for being that king, being that judge for us that no human can possibly be. We pray, Lord, that as we look at this just depraved story, that you would, it would make us turn to you. It would make us just fall on our face in repentance before you. We pray, Jesus, for all of our hearts, mine included, any parts of our hearts that are hardened towards you, that don't want you to be a part of our lives. We pray, God, that you would just mold us, change us, transform us, sanctify us so that you can be glorified. We pray, Jesus, for that today. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Guys, it's really late, so we're going to forego discussion today. So um, thanks for your attention, guys. We really appreciate it. And impact training is just after this service, so stay here for impact training if that applies to you.